0: There is a legend that at the Milan Cathedral, the largest church in Italy, the second largest in Europe, and the third largest in the world, which took nearly, by the way, six centuries to build, to complete, the legend goes that there were three inscriptions situated over three of the archways. And as the legend goes, over one of the archways is the inscription, all that pleases is but for a moment. Over another doorway, read read the words, all that troubles is but for a moment. But directly over the passageway of the central door, there was inscribed this simple but profound sentence, nothing is important save that which is eternal. Now I have yet to corroborate the accuracy of that particular legend. However, throughout the course of this short series, the truth that is embodied in those words have taken on a greater meaning. The most significant things that we do as disciples of Christ in the real world are those things which count for eternity, is that right? And generally speaking, those accomplishments usually require some sort of sacrifice on our parts. There is personal cost involved, and we've seen that throughout this chapter. Well, in an old book by the title, Who Switched the Price Tags? Anybody ever read that book? It's by Tony Campolo. He gives this illustration. He says, one day I was on an airplane traveling from Orlando, Florida to Philadelphia, and I was settled down in a window seat when I happened to glance across the aisle to the other side of the plane. And there, seated next to the window, opposite mine, was one of the most sophisticated and attractive women I had ever seen. After a few minutes, a very macho-looking guy came on the plane, and he was almost a stereotype of the kind of guy who hangs out at singles bars, right? And uh, with great interest, he says, I watched... As he moved down the aisle of the plane, and he spotted the empty seat next to the stunning woman, and he sat down next to her, and then he did his thing. <laughs> Made moves that a New York makeout man, he says, would have admired. And in no time at all, he had the young woman thoroughly involved in conversation, hanging on his every word. Now, as a sociologist, Tony writes, I was fascinated with this interaction. But then an unexpected and exciting thing happened. When he had her completely engaged in conversation, she made her move and pulled a reversal. Suddenly extracting a Bible from her shoulder bag, before the guy could figure out what was happening, she was laying the gospel on him. And her eyes sparkling with excitement, he said, she began telling him all about Jesus. And she pointed out verse after verse that showed the way of salvation. And I must admit, this sudden turn of events absolutely amused me. And at one point, I had to bite my tongue to keep from laughing. But this was no laughing matter. Brilliantly and seriously, she told the story of God's salvation. And after his initial shock, he began to listen to her with genuine interest. Well, the plane landed in Philadelphia on schedule and rolled up to the reception gate so that the passengers could disembark. Everyone squeezed into the aisle and stood in their usual convoluted fashion. And it was as I was standing in the aisle, he says, that I noticed that the makeout man and the woman were not standing. Instead, they were both seated with their heads bowed in prayer. She had her hand on his shoulder. And I knew that with that prayer, he was accepting Christ as his Lord and Savior. That woman will not, he says, be granted an honorary doctorate for what she did. No magazine will nominate her as woman of the year. No mention will be made in the evening news of what she did that day. But he says, it will have eternal significance. Now, you may say to yourselves, well, that wasn't really much of a risk. I mean, her life wasn't in the balance. How high was the cost for her? Now, granted, others have paid a much higher price for confessing Christ before people. I could have recounted a handful of stories of martyrdom, but that wouldn't really have hit the mark with most of you, would it? Because you wouldn't be able to relate to that. Those stories often seem so surreal to us, so otherworldly, that we almost can't relate. But we can relate to someone confessing Christ in a situation like I just explained to you. That we might encounter on a regular basis. Like in the grocery store or checkout line, or on a plane, or wherever it might be in your normal daily life. Tell me, if you were the person on the plane, would you have reacted the same way that this woman did? Would you have confessed Christ in that situation? Would you have been willing to pay the price of looking foolish, sounding fanatical, or coming on too religiously? Would you have been ready to take up the cross of death to self and take the risk of public humiliation for Jesus' sake? You see, testifying of our love for Jesus and proclaiming the good news of his salvation requires the same kind of internal motivation whether you are standing before a firing squad or sitting on a plane. It requires these kinds of things, self-sacrifice. It requires uncompromising commitment. It requires total devotion to Jesus. Now in our text today, Jesus doesn't paint a serene portrait of what discipleship will be like. He hasn't yet, has he, in Matthew chapter 10. Rather, he's gonna shock all of us by giving us the intense cost right up front. It almost seems like he's trying to scare people off Rest assured, he's not, but neither is he trying to enlist people for the sheer sake of having numbers that he can check off on a list that are following him. Jesus was never interested in how many followers he could gather and amass, but in how many committed ones he had. Is that right? He wants serious followers, not superficial friends. That's why he implies that before anyone decides to sign on with Jesus, they had better consider the high cost involved because total commitment to Christ demands that careful consideration of the cost. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to bring peace on the earth. Well, that's an interesting statement coming from the Prince of Peace, isn't it? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, too often, and pastors are as guilty of this as anyone We fall into this trap of portraying Christianity as Jesus is the answer to all your problems formula. Is that right? Now, while ultimately that is true, in the real tangible world of daily existence and experience, following Jesus can present us with some major physical, emotional, and relational problems that we would never have encountered have we chosen not to follow Jesus. Is that right? Right? Now Jesus didn't try to deceive his would-be followers into thinking that it would be easy to walk with him. No, he didn't do that at all. So today I want to be as honest with you as Jesus was with the 12 here in Matthew chapter 10 and highlight four areas in this text of serious consideration concerning the cost of discipleship in the real world. Here's the first one. Don't dismiss the controversy involved in following Jesus. Okay, verse 34. Look at the disclosure again that Jesus makes here. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And what Jesus discloses to his disciples right here must have jolted them into horror. Because all along he's been preaching this gospel of peace, a gospel of love, a gospel of humility. And now he tells them that by accepting that gospel, there's going to be war. Now, don't presume, Jesus warns, that my, by my coming onto the, into the world, peace is going to overwhelm the earth. On the contrary, by my presence, I am thrusting forth a sword. He says, this means war. The Jews fully expected their Messiah to break on the scene and bring peace and tranquility to to all of life. The fact is, is that had the world accepted Jesus as the awaited Messiah at his first coming, that would have happened. Amen? But that didn't happen. They didn't accept him that way. His own people rejected him. And Jesus, through the scriptures, we know, is the Prince of Peace, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You'll probably hear that verse reiterated a number of times in the upcoming weeks preceding Christmas, and through faith in Him, we have peace with God, according to Romans 5 verse 1, that's a fact. and through the outworking of the Holy Spirit within us, we can be at peace with others, according to Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. But as the prophesied Messiah, Jesus is the one, according to Luke chapter 1 verse 79, that will guide our feet into the way of peace, Is that right? And on the night Jesus was born, you remember that in Luke chapter 2? What did the angels proclaim? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Well, Jesus just said, I didn't come to bring peace. But the angels said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. But the following phrase there is key, right? On earth peace, with who? Among men with whom he is pleased. The peace that Christ brings now is personal and it's spiritual and it becomes physical only to the extent that we, you and I, are filled with his Holy Spirit and submit to him in obedience. That's the way we experience peace now. Jesus told his disciples just hours before his crucifixion, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. That's in John 14, 27. But it was not what they expected. Little did they realize that the next day there would be anything but peace in Jerusalem, the city of peace, right? Jerusalem, that's what it means, city of peace. There would instead be a cross, a piercing sword that would divide religions, split families, separate the true believers from the false believers. Christ brings peace only to those who have a personal relationship with him. Him. Now, these things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's another thing to be thankful for, by the way. My father-in-law who led me to Christ, and you've heard me say this before, used to always say these, this, these, this phrase, the word divides. The word divides. What is this divisive word? The apostle John identified Jesus as the word, right? In John one, And he is the truth. And whenever he enters the picture, sharp division arises between those who believe in him and those who do not. It is Christ Jesus that divides. Okay? People are vehemently divided in their attitudes toward him. That's the sword that he's referring to here in this text in Matthew 10. He is the sword of spiritual division and dissension. He is the cutting edge of the cosmic battle between spiritual truth and spiritual falsehood. That's Jesus' disclosure. Now look at the dissension that it causes in verse 35. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own family. Household. Well, that's kind of a scary disclosure, isn't it? Who would want to sign on with something like that? The Greek word for sword here refers to this, people think it's like this giant Braveheart sword, like the one I have in my office. You've seen me bring it out here before. That's not what this word refers to here. This word refers to a short dagger that was an offensive weapon in warfare. It was designed to rip and shred the enemy apart. It's the same word Paul uses to refer to the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. That, by the way, is not a broadsword; It is a short dagger. It's an offensive weapon. And the writer of Hebrews said that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing, as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the same kind of sword he's referring to there in Hebrews 4.12. Jesus is the word made flesh, and that word divides, and he cuts like a knife. Okay? Now, when I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and first i thought i was bringing jesus home to meet my family who were very religious at the time it was like a sword ripped right through our family i thought they'd be incredibly happy instead they were excruciatingly disillusioned with me because of the way that i was talking things are different now praise god another thing to be thankful for similar things have happened to some of you Even Jesus dealt with the trauma of an antagonistic family and loved ones. In Mark chapter, and you probably, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Look at what it says there. It says, and he came home, meaning Jesus, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his mind. He's lost his senses, even his own people. John chapter 7 and verse 2, beginning in verse 2. John 7 verse 2, Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Then what's it say in verse 5? For not even his brothers were believing in him. That's sad. So Jesus said to them, my time is not here yet, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but the world, it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. I mean, not even his own brothers were believing in him. See, Jesus here in Matthew 10, back in Matthew 10 again, he's freely quoting from the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 7, verse 6, And in verse 35 here in Matthew 10, he says that a relationship with Jesus is going to turn even the closest of family members against each other. When Micah spoke the original words in chapter 7 of Micah, it was in the context of a nation so utterly evil that even the closest of relationships could not even be trusted. Daughters couldn't trust their mothers and mothers couldn't trust their daughters. And a man's enemies were that of his own household. Acts of betrayal and contempt occurred even within families in that context. And here Jesus gives it a slightly different twist and says that when a disciple receives me, meaning Jesus, through faith, the rest of the world who reject me, even sometimes the disciples' own family members, will absolutely oppose them. On another occasion, Jesus repeats even more graphically the sharp division brought on by following him in Luke chapter 12, in verses 51 to 53. It'll be on the screen for you. But this is what Jesus says in Luke 12. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, and three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Again, the word divides. And that phrase, to set against, is an intense Phrase meaning to make hostile or to cut in two. These are very serious words, which many of you here in this room probably have experienced at one point or another in your walk with Christ, with family members or friends. It's not fun to be at variance with your family, is it? Not at all. Not fun to be at odds with your best friends or especially even your spouse because that knife can cut right through a husband and a wife relationship when one is a believer and another is not. But that's exactly what's at stake when a person decides to become a follower of Christ. And that in itself is one of the greatest roadblocks and obstacles to a person's salvation. It's I, I've seen it many, many times over the course of of the ministry here where people have refused to accept Jesus or they're reticent to accept Jesus because they know it's going to bring division in their household. But Jesus says you can expect opposition. If you're gonna be my disciple, you can expect it even from your most intimate relationships. In fact, Jesus puts it in even more graphic terms when he says a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, you know, one of the hardest things in the world for me as a pastor is to lead a man or a woman to Christ or spiritually counsel a man or a woman whose whose spouse is not a believer because I know what they might have to face. And some of you know how difficult that is. And we've seen some miraculous happenings in this church where a spouse has come to faith in Christ and the other spouse has not, and they've prayed for them for years and years and years, and then finally, when it seemed like all was lost, that spouse gave their heart to Christ. Don't give up. Don't give up. You felt that pain. It's a very rough road to walk, and I want to take a quick aside just to give some spiritual encouragement to any of you who find yourself maybe in that situation. If you're a Christian and your husband or wife is not, or if you're experiencing some incredible antagonism from members of your family, let me give you this hope. No matter how bad it gets, remember this, God has not abandoned you, and he never will. Okay? There's plenty of scriptures to corroborate that fact. And he offers you the wisdom that you need to survive that. And he has promised to help you. He's promised to help you through it. So here's something I encourage people in this situation to try. I actually found this little tool in a, in a book entitled Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary. <laughs> Years ago, Lee Strobel wrote a book like this and from his own experience as being an atheist when his wife came to Christ. And then eventually he came to Christ. But you can use each letter of the word help to represent one bit of biblical counsel to assist you in getting through these very difficult times. So let's look at it, okay? Help. H, harness the support of others. That's where you want to start. Find a mature man or woman of faith to pray for you and with you on a regular basis. Someone who will provide biblical encouragement to you in your trying times. Don't, Don't find a yes person who will allow you to berate your unsaved spouse. That's not what you want, okay? But someone who will keep you focused on Jesus through that and not on your situation, okay? Harness the support of others. E, exercise restraint. Don't cram Christianity down your spouse's or your family's throat because the Apostle Peter said that we are always to be ready to defend the faith, but with, what? Gentleness and respect, okay? That's 1 Peter 3.15. I remember something the late Howard Hendricks said. He said, it's your job to love your spouse, It's God's job to change them. Okay? Just remember that. So exercise restraint. L, live your faith. Don't just talk about it. Even if your greatest enemies turn out to be the members of your own household, how are we supposed to treat our enemies according to Jesus? Yeah. Bless them. Pray for them. Are we supposed to attack them? Are we supposed to judge them? Are we supposed to badmouth them to other people, insult them, disrespect them, talk about them behind their back, disown them? Absolutely not. We are to love them, Jesus said. Love your enemies and do good to them and bless them and give generously to them. Just look it up in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 30. We are to have compassion on them, Romans chapter 12, 9 says. What you do for others in the name of Christ will sometimes have more impact on them than what you say about Christ to them if they're not ready to hear it. That's exactly how my wife, Denise, got to me. And some of you know that testimony. She just lived it in front of me because she knew if she tried to talk me into it, or tried to berate me into it that it wasn't going to happen. Okay? Finally, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 that we are also to pray for those who are antagonistic toward us. Pray for them. My wife prayed for me and prayed for me and prayed for me, and she got this whole little Bible study group that she was in. It's women praying for me and praying for me. And I remember when I finally did get saved and I walked into that, my home, they were having a Bible study, and all these women were like, we've been praying for you. I was like, who are you? <laughs> pray. And so that's the P in help. Pray, pray, and pray some more. Don't give up on it. That is where the power lies. Here is where your prayer life will radically change from just a routine ritual to a plea for survival. Okay? You have no control over your situation or your spouse's salvation. God is the only place you can turn to when you are hurt, frustrated, angry, and ready to call it quits. Focus on what the Scriptures say and pray them for those closest to you, okay? Because God promises wisdom in His Word. James says, if you lack wisdom, let Him ask and He'll pour it out on you, okay? Ask without doubt, without wavering, and He'll give it to you. He can give a new heart and a new spirit to that person that you're praying for. Only he can remove the heart of stone and give that person a heart of flesh. I cannot guarantee that if you use this little tool that your unsafe spouse or family member will change, but I can guarantee one thing, you will. You will. Jesus said discipleship costs something. Sometimes it costs us a smooth sailing relationship with the ones we love most jesus demands our loyalty to him over and above all others we need to know that there will be heavy controversy when we decide to follow jesus so don't dismiss the controversy a man's enemies might be the members of his own household but in light of all of that we must also realize that we will be confronted with some extremely hard decisions so the scripture warns those who would choose to follow jesus to not discount the choices involved in following Jesus. Look at verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, these are what I would call the deep blues of discipleship. Okay? Is there a high cost involved here? The high cost of following Jesus involves some hard, hard decisions because Jesus demands that he occupy first place in our loyalty, first place in our love. Because he doesn't want 50% devotion. He doesn't want 75% devotion. He doesn't even want 95% devotion. You know why? Because the disciple who is 95% committed to Christ is 5% short. He wants total commitment to Christ. Now, does that mean that we ignore our family's needs in order to give more to the church? Does it mean that we should attend every meeting and event that the church has and get involved in every ministry possible while we neglect spending time with our spouse or our children? Do we use that as an escape to get away from what's hard at home? That's not loving Christ more than anything. That's conveniently avoiding your true responsibilities in every other area of your life. It's a total misunderstanding and misapplication of the scriptures. Listen, as a friend once said, Christ is not so much concerned about what we do in the church as much as who we are in Him. Okay? He's not so much concerned about what we do in the church as much as He is who we are in him. And when we who are rooted in Jesus if we're rooted and grounded in him we will fulfill our biblical responsibilities in a balanced and spiritually healthy way. So the scripture says husbands are to love their wives wives are to respect their husbands. Parents are to love their n- and nurture their children. Children honor their parents, but our individual commitment to Christ is so far beyond that of any earthly relationship that if it ever came down to the hard choice between Christ and, and you fill in the blank, Christ and what or who? Jesus' loyalty to Christ must take precedence. Now, church history relates many such stories, One powerful example is found in the life of a woman by the name of Perpetua, 22-year-old nursing mother imprisoned and eventually martyred for her faith in AD 203, okay? It's 200 years after Christ, Christ's death. She refused to deny Christ, even if it meant that she would be put to death, leaving her infant son behind. Now, try to wrap your head around that, if you could. At one point, history tells us that her father pleaded with her to renounce Christ, and this is what he said. Quote, daughter, have pity on my gray head and have pity on me, your father. Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother and your aunt, think of your child who will not be able to live once you're gone. Give up your pride, you will destroy all of us." Later, her father appeared at her hearing with her infant son, dragged her from the step before the governor and demanded that she renounce Christ by offering a sacrifice to the emperors. Perform the sacrifice, her father said, and have pity on your baby. At that point, the governor demanded the same thing. Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice. I will not, cried Perpetua. Are you a Christian, asked the governor. Yes, I am, she replied. And the father persisted in pleading with her, and the governor then ordered her father to be thrown to the ground and beaten with a rod in her presence. And although this pierced her heart with sorrow, she refused to renounce Christ. I can't even think of a situation like that, putting myself in a situation like that. Can you? She refused to renounce Christ and was sentenced to be thrown to the beasts in the amphitheater. And she, along with other young Christian women, was stripped naked, placed in nets, and brought into the arena. Miraculously, she survived those beasts, but was later martyred by the sword, peacefully and willingly choosing Christ over any other loyalty, even her own family. Now, I pray that none of you, none of us, will ever have to face such a traumatic decision. And yet the fact remains that it's possible that our loyalty to our family may be greater than our love for Jesus when it keeps us from doing what we know God's will to be. I have known people who have refused God's clear call to service simply because they've allowed personal relationships to immobilize them. What would so-and-so say? What would so-and-so think? That's not even a death threat, right? That's just reputation, Discipleship means giving one's first loyalty to Christ. In fact, our love for Christ must be so strong, according to the Scriptures, that our love for any other person seems like hate by comparison. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. said Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, now how could he say these things, right? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words. Really narrows, narrows the group that will come to him, doesn't it? They're hard to accept words. But the meaning of hate here is clearly to love less by comparison, obviously. Otherwise, this would not be the statement of a Messiah, but a maniac, according to some. As Messiah, Jesus says, you must put me first above all else, even your own life. But discipleship is an extremely high calling with an extremely high price. It demands that nothing take precedence over him. Jesus is not condoning hate here. He's saying you must love me above everything. What is the one thing, the one thing that you would not give up for Jesus if he asked you to? It may be more than one thing. But consider this. What did he give up for you? Now, don't dismiss the controversy involved in following Jesus. Don't discount the choices involved. They're very high, high stakes. They cut to the most personal level imaginable. When Jesus calls a man or woman to follow him, he offers not only controversy and hard choices, but it says here he offers a cross. He bids us, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, to come and die. And so the third thing that we see here in this text is that Jesus says, don't disregard the cost of following Jesus, of following me. Verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I mean, we have such a warped view of what that means, taking up your cross and following Jesus. And I can't say that I have it figured out or I can even wrap my whole head around it But I know one thing. I know that what I consider taking up a cross and following Jesus is far probably less than what he was saying right here in this text. H.B. London said it this way. He said, the badge of Christian discipleship is not a lapel pin. It's not a cross around one's neck or a bumper sticker or even membership in a church. It's a lifestyle, an identification with Jesus' words, life, and mission It's a commitment not just to a cause or a creed, but also to a cross-bearing lifestyle that demands our very souls. And he goes on to say that because we live in a day of fickle followers, fair-weather worshipers, and slumbering saints, it is vital that we take every opportunity to proclaim that it's not easy to be a Christian. It never has been, and it never will be. Unquote. To take up the cross in today's society has kind of lost its thrust a little bit, hasn't it? We have so spiritualized it and allegorized it that it means almost nothing to us. The cross in most church circles is regarded as a symbol of service and self-denial or some other burden to carry. But this was not the case in Jesus' day. To the people of Jesus' day, they understood the cross to mean only one thing and one thing only, Death. Because when Jesus mentions the cross, that was not something that they were looking back on like we do today as a religious symbol. It was like we look at the electric chair today or the IV needle of a lethal injection. The cross was recognized as the cruel instrument of death for a condemned man. In other words, the cross was where He sacrificed everything. There were no self-centered ambitions there, no comforts, no achievements, no glory or dreams that held him back. There was nothing that distracted Jesus from doing God's will. The cross was what Jesus was willing to endure for you and for me. So now, when Rome crucified criminals, often the criminal carried his own cross to the site of execution. That's historic. We know that. But this public display was in effect an admission that Rome was right in sentencing that person to death and that he was wrong. So similarly, when Jesus calls his disciples to carry their cross and follow him, he calls us to publicly display ourselves before the world, admitting that Jesus is right and we are submitting ourselves to him, even to our death. That's literally what Jesus is talking about here with the cross. Luke 9, 23 says, And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And it's a daily thing, isn't it? Daily is the critical word here. And that's what it's going to take. The cost of discipleship means refusing to indulge ourselves with our selfish, sinful bent and committing ourselves to doing the will of God every single day. Every single day. It's a new day every morning you get up, it's another day to take up your cross and deny yourself. That's tough. By the way, the self-denial that Jesus speaks of here is not denying ourselves luxuries like a Big Mac, the chocolate chip cookies, cigarettes, cigarettes, and cocktails, although it may include all those things. It is, as the late John Stott says, quote, actually denying or disowning ourselves, okay? It's not just these little things that we like. It's denying ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go in our own way. That idea informs a lot of what's going on in our culture today. You need to rethink that, all of us do. To deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. If you walk out of this message with anything, remember that one. Because that is going to set the trajectory of how you live your life on a daily basis. To deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. So to take up the cross is to realize that we, you and I, are expendable. That there's a far greater and more profound purpose for us to be living on this earth than simply to please ourselves. We must realize that, I must realize, that I was created first and foremost to bring glory to God, and I cannot do that when I'm preoccupied with my own plans, no matter how noble that cause may be. And you know we all struggle with that every single moment, don't we? The Apostle Paul identified what taking up our cross means in practical personal terms in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul said, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That really kind of sums it up. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then later on in Galatians chapter 6, and verse 14, Paul writes, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that brings up a huge question in our minds that we could ponder for a long time, and we probably should, are we really crucified to the world and the world to us? Because true self-denial is not the road to self-destruction. Self-denial is the road to self-discovery. It's only when we're willing to be crucified and broken before God that we become useful disciples of Jesus. And that's what the cross is all about, Jesus said, brokenness. And God desires it in his worshipers, and Jesus requires it in his disciples. You see, we all have a cross to bear, a death to undergo. That's the cost, Jesus said, of discipleship. Consider it well. Are you willing to take that on? If you haven't already, this is probably not a great advertisement for it, right? Right? And that this is what Jesus was doing. He was giving the cost up front. This is a radically different way of life than most of us are accustomed to. But have you considered the alternative? Mahatma Gandhi once said that seven things will destroy us. Wealth without work. Pleasure without conscience. Mark these words now. See if we're not living these words today. Wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanity, politics without principle, and religion without sacrifice, unquote. Christianity demands a cross. That's what Jesus said. Jesus' words trump all words. So finally, don't dispute the conclusion which Jesus gave us here in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39. He who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. I love the way the Living Bible puts it here. If you cling to your life, you will lose it, but if you give it up for me, you will save it. Jesus is simply laying it out plainly in the context of all he has previously said. If you think you'll preserve your life now by refusing to confess me before men, Jesus says, by consistently living for ourselves, if you think you'll get a better grasp on life by choosing your own interests over mine, you'll be bitterly disappointed. You will lose. But if you give yourself away for getting your own wants out of loyalty to me, being willing, if need be, to pay the supreme price, believe me, one day you will be with me in paradise because you will have exhibited that you truly are one of mine. That's what Jesus is saying. Boy, that flies in the face of a lot of prosperity teaching today. Flies in the face of a lot of teaching today. It certainly flies in the face of the world's teaching today. In the words of Jim Elliot, who exemplified these words of Jesus, He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God in heaven, this is a very, very weighty message. And I'm thankful, Lord God, that they're your words and I didn't come up with them on my own. That you laid it out plainly for us here in Matthew 10. May your Holy Spirit be strong in us, Lord God, so that we can sift through all that we see in this text and realize how exactly you want to us apply it to us. I can't even begin to understand what that means for each individual person sitting in this room and listening by some other means. But I do know, Lord God, for those of us who name the name of Christ and want to follow you fully, it has weight, it has bearing, it means that we've got a lot of work to do as we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's leading. Father, there have been times in our lives, I'm sure, when we have taken up the cross. Help us to remember those times, Lord God, and may they drive us more to our knees at the foot of the cross, Lord God, to submit ourselves to you, recognizing how much you gave for us. You gave your life that we might live, that we might have full forgiveness of sins, that you poured out your mercy upon us, Lord, undeserved, grace upon grace. May we be ever thankful for all that you have done and all that you are accomplishing in your people. We love you. We fall far short of your glory and we confess that and ask your forgiveness. But we know you love us and you lead us. May we follow hard after you, I pray. For Jesus' sake, for the sake of his kingdom, amen.